This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. Hey guys, it's Brandon from the Macro Ops Value Hive podcast. This week, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Will Hershey. Will is the co-founder and president of Roundhill Investments. Roundhill is an RAA dedicated to providing thematic ETFs in the esports, sports betting, and deep value investing space. Will and I spend over an hour discussing each of these topics, as well as the importance of indexing based on keywords that fit a thematic and not just market cap. But before we dive into the conversation, I want to let you guys know about our Macro Ops Collective Sale that ends this Sunday. At MacroOps, our aim is simple. We want to make high risk-adjusted returns consistently, continuously learn while doing so, and have a lot of fun along the way. And in this regard, our record speaks for itself. This is partly why we have by far the highest retention rates of any investing service in the industry. Collective members tend to stay members for a long time because there really is nothing else like us. Once again, the doors are open until the end of day Sunday, at which point we'll be closing the enrollment in period and won't be opening back up for some time. We offer differentiated research, theory, and education resources, plus a killer Slack community filled with some of the smartest operators from around the world. Our members are predominantly professionals, but we also have a high number of highly motivated retail investors and traders. The one thing we all share is a deep love for the game of investing and an unquenchable thirst to get better. If this sounds like you, then consider signing up and checking us out. You simply go to macro-ops.com forward slash collective. That's macro-ops forward slash collective. All right. I am pleased to chat with Will Hershey, co-founder and uh, CEO of Roundhill Investments. I originally got interested in Will's uh, Roundhill products and kind of what he has to say on markets and video games and gaming and sports betting when you were on Toby's podcast. And so I just kind of want to expand on what you said there and maybe dive into some deeper things that I want to scratch my own itch on. So I appreciate you coming on. Sounds great. Um, thanks for having me. Let's do it. Yeah. So let's just get a first background information. I know a lot of people probably have already listened to Toby's podcast. So, but for those who haven't, just give us a quick elevator pitch. You know, who is Will Hershey and what do you do for a living and how'd you make your way into Roundhill? Sure. Um, so I'm, as you mentioned, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Roundhill Investments. Um, we are an SEC registered RIA um, focused on thematic ETFs. Um, so we, we do a little bit more than that, but that's really our core business is really launching, uh, ETFs that start to kind of get liquid exposure to a given story that they want to express a position in. Um, and so we have the ETFs, we hopefully plan to launch more in the future. I can't share too much in terms of what we're working on, but we also are actually building an app, um, oh. kind of targeting uh, self-directed investors that we're working on. And we've recently did, which might be relevant for today's conversation, uh, back in March, we closed as an SPV. So we've done a private investment as well into Epic Games. So that's kind of our wow. core business. Um, we're a we were a team of two. We're now growing to four as we've seen assets increase. But 
when you're the startup, you know, when you're in startup mode at, at an RIA, you're really kind of doing everything, right? So even though I'm CEO and name, I'm involved in creating the indexes, managing the products, everything that goes into it. So talk to us about, if you can, I mean, obviously, if you can, this is all with that caveat, talk to us about that Epic Games SPV, because that sounds interesting. If you can't discuss it, then that's fine. But I just wanted to see if I could pull at that thread. <laughs> I can't give you, you too much of the good stuff there, okay. um, but we had, I, I'll just share the high level. Uh, we had the opportunity um, back in uh, kind of the middle of, I, I think I said March, but I think it might have been May. We had the opportunity to participate in a secondary offering. Uh, so it wasn't primary. It wasn't new issuance, although they recently closed new issuance, which was a nice up round for us. Um, so really, we're able to put that together on behalf of investors who are really interested in the space. I mean, I don't need to tell you that there's so many companies that are staying private longer than ever that are doing really amazing, interesting things. And that increasingly impressive valuations. Um, but we were able to put that together, really a passive investment. Um, so the SPV structure really is only gonna hold that single asset. It's not open to the public. We're not taking more capital there. But it was just such a unique opportunity. It was like, you gotta move on it. Yeah, how'd you get started into the ETF game specifically? I know you made it, you originally got your start, I guess, in energy, but then how did you make that jump from energy, oil and gas to video games? It seems like kind of a wide stretch. Oh, it, it, it is. Um, it, it's, it's made a whole lot easier when energy goes down every day for five years, yeah. right? The decision to switch <laughs> is, a, is a whole, whole yeah, exa- oh yeah. I can, I can only imagine what the, the conversation would have been on the desk if I was in energy when, you know, when, when WTI prompt hits negative, you know, $37 a barrel, Yeah. yeah. probably time to, to go home and, and come back tomorrow. But um, no, so I actually got my start out of undergrad, um, with an ETF issuer. So the company I had been interning with um, at Vanderbilt, um, right when I was getting out and going to start with them, actually launched two energy focused products back in 2011, 2012. Very different ETF market back then, right? There were many fewer issuers. Um, It was actually a legal arbitrage back then to even be able to issue ETFs. So you had to pay, Hmm. call it a million, two million bucks in legal fees to get what's called exemptive relief. Hmm. exemptive relief no longer even exists as of this past year with the new ETF rule. Um, but really, um, so was, was working, helped kind of develop the indexes for those two funds. And the partners at Yorkville ETF, where we launched these products, kind of also had alongside of that a white label platform for new ETF issuers, kind of going off of that legal arbitrage. Not every firm wanted to commit that capital. Mm-hmm. Um, exchange traded concepts still exist today, but working alongside of them, I got to kind of see tons of products that were being proposed to, to launch on that white label um, and really got to appreciate the ETF business model, um, how scalable it is, I think is really what, what turned me on to it most. Yeah. Uh, the ability kind of as a small team back then to raise 400 million into, into energy ETFs um, really turned me on to it. And, and more than that, you know, kind of laid the groundwork for me really believing that ETFs make sense for a lot of people. Um, and, and we've kind of leveraged that into kind of a Peter Lynchian style of ETFs, which is a lot of, a lot of people, I think, generally speaking, for, for the average investor, your edge, if there is one, is really identifying trends in things that are going on and happening right. around you that you're engaging with. That being said, I think most people probably shouldn't be uh, doing too much in terms of single names. I think it's great to learn, but most people don't have the time and effort to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so fast forward to today, actually, before starting Round Hill, I was, we also uh, launched a long short 
um, version of our strategy. So I was most recently the head trader uh, for a long short MLP product. We got seeded for about 150 million, which is big in MLPs um, and just unfortunate timing. Um, and I'm kind of all over the place with the story, but to give you the kind of the brief, brief synopsis, that fund was winding down. I looked at myself and said, do I want to continue to be a trader? No, that's glorified button pressing, even though I was trading equity swaps, which are a little bit more involved. Right. And two, did I want to kind of tie my career further to, to energy and more specifically midstream? And I, you know, fortunately the right decision there was not to stay in that sector. Yeah. Um, not something I really believed in the future. So got together with my, my co-founder, Tim, I said, Hey, look, I know how to do ETFs. Um, I think there's a real opportunity to create differentiated products. Like I mentioned, um, let's give it a try. And we raised a friends and family round. Uh, we actually raised a VC round from a gaming focused VC hmm. because we knew at that time we wanted video games and esports to be our initial product. Right. Um, and then we kind of, you know, hit the ground running and now we're, we're kind of approaching 200 million in, in AUM uh, throughout our, our various structures. Um, so yeah, that, that was kind of, that was kind of how it all came together. And, and just to give people, if anyone's interested in starting an ETF, the reason we raised that capital is ETFs, believe it or not, are, are somewhat expensive to, to launch and maintain. So in terms of overhead, you're looking at call it 200 to 250 K per year. Uh, to have an ETF out on an exchange. And what's, what's, what's the bulk of that, of that overhead? Is it just legal fees and compliance? No, you know, a lot of it has like come down over time. A lot of it's been commoditized. It's, it's not as much legal unless you're doing kind of more of these esoteric structures. Um, right. We're for our products right now, they're, they're domestic and international equity. So they're pretty vanilla. Um, you know, the various, you know, service providers that we pay are custody fund admin, accounting, audit, compliance, um, distributor. I mean, the list goes on and on of different third parties that we work with. I think when you get to be Vanguard or State Street, they're, they've kind of gotten to the point where some of those functions they're taking in-house. But even then, I mean, do you want to custody, you know, Korean equities? That, that's not fun. Um, so working with a third party really makes that a whole lot more feasible. Got it. And you said earlier that when you were, you approached Tim, your co-founder and said, Hey, I want to make, I want to make this product. You realized early on that video games was going to be a core part of that ETF. Does that spring from a personal passion for gaming or was it, was it something where you just couldn't ignore this giant wave that was forming way out on the horizon? And you said, look, we got to be a part of this. If I'm speaking, honestly, I used to be a, a pretty big gamer. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was trading for a hedge fund, I wasn't, um, but I still do play video games from time to time when I have time. Um, but really it was kind of more, I think really what drove it was you saw all of this capital flowing into esports teams in particular, professional gaming teams. And a lot of it was from, you know, notable high net, ultra high net worth investors, many of whom own traditional sports teams. And you also had, I think, you know, kind of the year prior in, in, we're going back to like 2018 when we started really thinking about this, you kind of had this cultural phenomenon that felt like it was taking place, particularly within Fortnite, uh, you know, Ninja and Drake streaming on Twitch to hundreds of thousands of people. There was kind of this um, gut feel we had that, that the industry was kind of on the precipice of, of further growth. Got it. And speaking of that video game passion, one of the biggest IPOs or, or one of the biggest S1s to be, to be announced has been Unity technology unity software um i know that in our 
original outline when I went to send this to you. I, I wanted to get your thoughts and, you know, I don't know how much time you've had to dig into that actual S1 or if you've, you know, maybe, maybe looked at some interviews, but it, but it sounds like something that kind of fits right in with this theme that you guys are going for the video games, the, the, the pitch and, you know, the picks and shovels type model, walk us through what you see in unity and what you like and, 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 and kind of how that might structure into one of your ETFs. Sure. And let me go back to the last question because people are going to think I'm a total fake. I still am playing games, okay? I'm playing Warzone. I'm actually even playing Halo 5. It's a shame Halo is, is delayed for the new console, but just wanted to make sure because that's like the most important thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so to answer your question, I, had some t I spent some time with the Unity S1. Speaking frankly, we are kind of thematic investors rather than fundamental investors. So yeah in terms of determining whether we're taking positions is really more on, do they fit the theme than is this company based on valuation, particularly attractive. Yep. Um, that being said, I did spend some time and would even more than that, if you don't have the time to read the full, full S1, would highly recommend um, Aaron Bush at Master the Meta put out an amazing piece, I think it was yesterday, kind of digging through all of the salient points. But Unity is, is a, a name that's been rumored to IPO for, I don't know, two or three years now. I actually saw the CFO uh, speak at Goldman's video game conference last year. Mm -hmm. um, and I think at really the highest level, when you look at the kind of what we're talking about here, the backbone, the picks and shovels of the game industry, there's kind of two main players. One is Unreal Engine, which is owned by Epic Games, which we talked about. And the second is, is Unity. And I think where Unity really fits in is kind of that, not, not lower tier, but, but kind of more focused on quantity um, than Epic, which is really kind of the quality AAA titles that we're seeing in the market. Right. A few things that really stood out to me and were kind of surprising to me are the, going, coming back to that quantity point, right? Like I'll just take this stat that I, I pulled out of the S1, but 53% of the top App Store and Google Play games are running on Unity. I mean, I think to have that um, kind of penetration for them within mobile games, which we can talk about, but I personally believe I'm most bullish on, if you're talking about any segment within gaming, whether it's PC, console, mobile, for me, mobile is the most exciting part of the entire market right now. And that, that to have that um, kind of stronghold there was really impressive. They, they also said that 50% of all games across all those platforms is with, is with Unity. So this Just is really bonkers. crazy. I mean, it's really a play on and I think this is what it will attract a lot of investors. It's really a play on the growth of the overall games industry. But putting that aside, they also um, work with some of the top publishers, right? So Pokemon Go built on Unity, uh, Call of Duty Mobile, which is a Tencent game. Uh, a lot of people think it's Activision. Activision actually is just a publisher. Tencent built it. Um, so they're working with top publishers. And then when, when we, I did have a chance to dig in a little bit more to kind of the financials. Um, one thing, that kind of stood out to me was the, I mean, you're talking about a games industry that is $150 billion in revenues last year. Yeah. Um, growing high single digits pre-COVID right now is being accelerated to, you know, high teens, if not into the twenties, if you're looking at numbers there. Yeah. What did surprise me was given their, their stake of 50% of the entire industry, the revenues of, I think it was somewhere around 500 million for last year. Does that sound about right? I think it was like 546 um, maybe, but yeah. That, that implied a, a relatively lower take rate than I would have expected. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, I think, you, I think it's a really fascinating company. And I think um, 
what what also stood out was because I think of Unity as kind of more of the game engine for indie developers. Yeah. When you look at something they broke out in the S1, which is clients above a hundred thousand, um, that was growing double digits for them. And I think that's going to be really important. Although the game industry is certainly getting more fragmented, and you're seeing um, you're seeing more and more of these indie developed games that end up being you know successes. I think. Yeah. Um, probably the best example right now, and I think they, I think they might have put the image of it in the S1, is Fall Guys, um, which is came out of nowhere to become the number one wa- most watched game on Twitch. All of a sudden, huh. that's a Unity game. Wow. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's just one of these things where I think, I think the power of Unity, like you said, is giving these individual creators the ability to produce. Because one of the one of the parts about their S1 that I liked was just just the scalability where unity works if you're a college student wanting to make a game just for fun as much as it does you know ea sports or something like that where you can re, where you can still plug and play um how does how does that when 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 you look at unity because one of the things i want to just transition to right now is how you create this gaming benchmark and how one even thinks about how to structure this benchmark because that and and i'm talking about your etf nerd um, yep. an ERD. And in your interview with Toby, you basically said you wanted to create a benchmark and you wanted to be the benchmark for esports and gaming. So in that mindset, how do you think about adding companies to the benchmark? And then what does that process look like? I mean, I know um, you you guys do like, you know, screening for keywords and stuff, but in, in this Unity case, how does, how does that, like, let's use that in as, a, as an example for whether a company fits that ETF. Sure. Um, and I, I don't want to front run ourselves, so I won't tell you one way or another what will yeah. end up happening with, with, with Unity. Of course. But, yeah. I think, but I think you bring up, you're kind of alluding to an interesting dynamic and shift that we've seen within the indexing industry, which I think a lot of people don't necessarily talk about that, to- that often because it's not the most, most sexy. But really, historically, indexes and benchmarks were made for that, just that purpose, right? They were, they were built in mind with being a benchmark for Perform, for active manager performance to be benchmarked against. Yep. And what we've seen with the proliferation of kind of these more niche and sector specific and thematic products is the use case for an index has shifted from that of a benchmark to that of the basis for a product. Hmm. And I think really when we're going about creating indexes now, it's a question of how do we, how do we create an index that really fits our goals in terms of what the actual product will be. And for us, um, it really comes down to taking a pure play um, approach to the industry and theme that we're trying to provide exposure to. So one thing that we do um, is try, and you mentioned kind of the the keyword screening that frames the universe that we're pulling from. We're then also going down and kind of analyzing companies one by one and determining how pure play are they to the theme of esports and digital entertainment um, and really utilizing that to kind of dictate the weightings that we have in the index, which I think a lot of index providers still go to kind of market cap as being the, the kind of default de facto yep. weighting methodology. We think that it, when we're putting out an esports product or a sports betting product, um, really our goal should be liquidity providing. Let's provide beta exposure to that theme. When someone buys esports, let's have something that trades with that industry. I, and it's kind of this weird concept of chicken and the egg. How do you know, you know, what's the right way of doing it? There's yeah. no right answer. Um, so it's a little bit of art, a little bit of science. Um, 
but that's really always going to be our goal is let's, let's identify companies that are in fact um, kind of as pure play as possible to the various themes and, and, and build it from there. Was there a lot of trial and error that went involved in how you decided what way to best display a thematic in terms of, you know, waiting, because I assume it's almost like this, um, you know, decision tree, and then you assign certain, not, not probabilities, but, you know, certain, certain weights to certain words. And so was there, was there ever a trial and error um, in deciding that final method? And then did you, did you use any resources? Like what were, you know, did you, did you try to copy any other indexes out there or, you know, how did you, how did you try to get that first, um, you know, level down and figuring out, okay, this is kind of how we want to do it. Yeah, it was 100% trial and error because when you say, I want to launch a fintech ETF, it's like, okay, where do you start? Yeah, it's just so broad. Um, <laughs> I think um, definitely a ton of trial and error, um, but we knew right away from the very beginning that um, we really kind of wanted to do this pure play methodology and kind of have that be the roundhill model for any future product. Um, but really, the, I mean, Bloomberg has been a great tool for us because they have a document search function on there. Um, and kind of playing around with different keywords. But I think what's really important to highlight that is definitely different from, from others um, is we really kind of do, as the index committee, have discretion in terms of figuring out what's what. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to kind, kind of try and come up with a perfectly rules-based methodology yeah. um, for something like this, right? I mean, look at Tencent as an example, right? Tencent is so ingrained in everything esports and gaming but it also has a significant other part of the business, right? Whether it's WeChat um, or other investments that they've made. How do you think about a company like that? Some, it ends up being somewhat art uh, in that sense as well. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I think that's just that's the best way to think about it. I think if you get too dogmatic in your process, you're going to miss. I mean, you could potentially miss something that could fit right in with that theme. Um, you, you also mentioned that you've got three core buckets within this nerd ETF, it's pure plays, core and non-core. Could you give us an example of what each of these look like? Um, maybe, maybe in a position. So like, what is, what does a pure play look like? What does a core look like? And then what does a non-core look like and, and how those weights are distributed? I mean, I would assume that the pure plays get the highest weighting and then yep. it kind of goes down from there. Yep. Um, and, and just important to note that for, for nerd, for a nerd index, for a nerd ETF, um, we're really not just targeting the video game industry. Instead, we're targeting what we believe to be kind of the most exciting and forward thinking component of that. So we have a tilt towards companies that are involved in esports, and, and we use that term a little bit differently than others. Really for, for right. us, that's this concept of, of not only professional play, but also social gaming and, and, and streaming. And, and for us, that's really what, what kind of the future of the games industry looks like. So with that tilt in mind, um, we really uh, try and identify which companies are most exposed. So using an example on the pure play side, well, I'll give you two because I think it's interesting. Mm -hmm. on the, in terms of game developers, we've identified Activision Blizzard as being a pure play in terms of esports, right? You look at the titles that are kind of driving that company. It's Call of Duty where they have the Call of Duty League. It's Overwatch where they have the Overwatch League. It's yep. World of Warcraft, one of the biggest games that's streamed on Twitch that gets a pure play versus um, using an example, take two, uh, actually gets a core weighting in our methodology because although they have NBA 2K League and Grand Theft Auto is really big on streaming, they're kind of more in this single player immersive um, type of model. Hmm. Um, but another example on, on the pure play that I like to talk about because I think it's a really interesting company is Huya. 
which is the largest game streaming platform, actually probably about to undergo a merger with Douyu, also in our portfolio. Um, those two are the two largest game streaming platforms in China where Twitch is banned. Um, yep. so, so really kind of they're a pure play on people watching people game. And for us, that's a really interesting theme. Uh, an example of a core, uh, this name has is, is been tremendous. Um, at one point, it was a pure play for us, but is C limited. Um, so okay. C, a lot of people know C, and a lot of people are excited about them right now for their e-commerce business, which is yeah. growing extremely rapidly. Um, at one point in time, though, C was a pure play company because most of their EBITDA, most of their revenues, I still think most of their EBITDA for sure, is coming from their digital entertainment segment. Um, one fun fact on C is they have the world's most popular battle royale game. I think no one in the U.S. has ever heard of it because it's focused on users in Latin America um, hmm. and and in Southeast Asia. But it's a game called Free Fire that Free I think Fire. just just surpassed a hundred million daily active users. Um, and when and, was and when was it launched? Oh, it was launched only a few years ago. It's just um, it's just mind blowing the scale that these games can reach so quickly. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Um, and the key, the key to that scale, mind you, is kind of the shift that we've seen in the games industry from when you and I were growing up, we would have to go to GameStop and buy a $60 cartridge. Now right. it's free to play monetization within the game. That's kind of mirrors, I think, a lot of what we're seeing throughout the world in terms mm -hmm. of monetization strategies. Typically it's advertisements here. It's in-game, in-game purchases. Um, but no, Free Fire is, is kind of a self-developed game that they've had. They also publish, uh, you know, League of Legends in Southeast Asia. They have kind of public, they have publishing arrangements with other developers in different parts of the world. Fascinating company. Uh, the example of a, kind of a non-core, I'll throw out one that no one's probably ever heard of, um, called MicroStar International, better known as MSI. They're a gaming hardware company. So they're involved in, in PCs um, and peripherals. Uh, specifically targeting gamers. So that's a non-core. And, and when we're weighting it, we, we came up with this methodology of pure plays get one and a half times the weighting of core, get one and a half times the weighting of non-core. Um, and then we have to screen for liquidity, right? So an example of a pure play um, that, that gets weighted down off the top of my head is Razer. Um, once again, really focused on high-end gaming peripherals is their core, core business. They also have Razer Esports. They're a pure play for us, but they're not as liquid, so they come down. Right, right. So, is there is there a market cap where you where you won't go because of that liquidity, or or is or is it? I guess liquidity is the only restraint. It's not necessarily market cap. I, for me, like I, I always believe that, you know, it they're typically highly correlated, but in certain cases they're they're not necessarily. And for us, um, in terms of having the ability to scale or come you know, retract if we get redemptions. Yeah. Liquidity is the only defining factor there, right? If it right. just so happens um, that they're far apart, but liquidity is that for us. Um, and we know we've taken approach that, look, if we can get pure play names that are hundred million market cap, and we have a few of them in there. Mm -hmm. um, let's get them in there, but we'll have to wait them at, you know, 50 basis points or, or, or whatever right. it might be. So we kind of reweight it back down based on liquidity, but the goal is always to get that pure play. Got it. I'm going to now kind of 
change the subject a little bit on the topic of differentiation through specialization. And it was one of the, one of the areas that I enjoyed listening, listening to your conversation again with Toby. And the quote you said is, I still think there's room to differentiate from a strategy standpoint and do things right. Two, I think what's sometimes not being done by these larger issuers, I guess these larger ETFs, who throw out all these products is really becoming experts in your underlying product, supplementing that with content and marketing. So I love the idea of, you know, you as an issuer, Roundhouse as an issuer, just really trying to be the expert and not necessarily just spitting out a product and saying, hey, look, this is our ETF, buy it if you want, but really becoming experts. So how do you at Roundhill address these two issues? Like what is your, what is your daily, uh, what is your, you know, what does your day-to-day look like? How do you focus on becoming the expert in let's call it the nerd ETF. How does like, what is, what does that look like? Are you always reading industry news, trying to look at different 10 Ks? How does, how does that look? Yep. No, it's a great question. And I think at the, at the highest level, helpful for people to understand what's typically done by others, which is you launch dozens of ETFs per year. You try and identify what's going to be hot. Right. And in a lot of ways, you, you're kind of, you're, you're able to talk the talk in the sense that you know the high level data points, but you don't really know what the underlying company does or what the industry trends are um, and really try and have, you know, kind of everything out there and sell what's hot is typically yep. how it's done. We really think that as the small guys in the ETF space, right, 200 million to drop in the bucket, mm-hmm. um, really what we want to do is be able to as best we can add value to people that are following us, right? Whether it's on Twitter or when we have chances to, to go in front of the media. Um, and I think in doing so, it's really important that we actually spend the time to dig in and learn as much about every underlying company uh, that we can. And what's been really effective, because once again, speaking frankly, I've been a casual gamer for long stretches of my life, but when we said we're gonna launch esports, I was not an expert in esports. And for me, the most most effective thing has really been having as many conversations as possible with people that are experts. And we are not, I'm not an expert yet. I don't know if I'll ever be. I think it takes years and years of time spent in the underlying industry and operating in that industry to really get to that point. Um, And I think just continuing to to reach out to people, to ask to speak with them, um, you pick up more in my mind from those conversations and the nuances than you do by, by reading. That's for me, typically Hmm. that being said, um, from a news standpoint, um, it's really kind of a few few areas that we keep up with. Um, one is really industry publications. So for for esports, the Esports Observer is an example um, of a com- of a kind of publication that's doing great work and thoughtful work. Um, but so it's it's industry publications, but it's also I mean we, we connected on Twitter. Yeah, Twitter is filled with you know, knowledgeable people who know so much about these various niches. And if you follow them, um, you're able to stay up on news, but also get insights to, to different parts of the market that you might not otherwise. And then through um, Bloomberg, I have, you know, I have auto alerts set up um, for companies, obviously within our portfolio, first and foremost, but also a broader universe that we're tracking as well. Because one thing we want to do is we don't want to miss um New companies coming to market like a unity. We definitely don't want to miss those, but we also yeah. don't want to miss kind of more subtle shifts that are taking place in the market. Right. Um, could, could a company like uh, this would be a stretch, but could a company like, like an Apple who has, you know, a games arm to it, Apple arcade, you know, in, in 30 years time, could they be generating a material part of their part of their revenues from, from games? I, I don't know. 
perhaps. Yeah. So that's kind of the the um, news element of of staying up to date. And and the the final thing I'd recommend for anyone that's trying to ingrain themselves in the industry is try and write yourself about it. I think you know there's so much when you go and try and write um, a, a piece and, and want and really want it to be good. The amount of time that you spend to to understand what you're what you're writing about yourself. Yeah. That just lends itself to everything else I talked about. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's actually funny. So, you know, for, for, for me at MacroOps, we, we released a, you know, a large 40 page uh, video game kind of uh, breakdown um, and kind of, kind of with some global themes and a lot of the names actually, you know, we, we, we brushed over and it was, it was really because of Roundhill, what we did is we used your ETF and then we just took the index and went through company by company, starting with the A's. And I think, I think also that might be a great way to start too, for people that just want to get to know what, what, what the industry is made of is taking a product that you've already created. That's right there for investors. And you just go straight through. And I've noticed that that's something I've done with any industry that I want to learn is I'll find the ETF for it, like find the nerd or something. And, and, well, you know, we're going to, we're going to dive into it, but your other, your other ETF bets is a perfect example. It's just, if you want to know about that, you just dive into it and then go company by company. No, absolutely. And I think in particular, um, in the U S maybe more than any other country, we tend to have a home country bias. Yeah. Um, I'm certainly, I've certainly been guilty of that in the past. Um, and I think that looking at ETFs can be a great way to learn about names that you, you probably, you know, you would never hear about on the, on the, on CNBC just because they, they only cover us names. And I, I totally think that's a good, good way of going about it. Yeah. And especially just, just kind of put a bookend on this, on this video game topic is the amount of amazing publish gaming publishing companies and video game companies in Japan, South Korea, and Poland. Um, Poland's actually really, really surprising me. Just, just the amount of really cool publishers. Like uh, personally, I'm invested in uh, CD project that makes you nice. know, cyber, cyberpunk 2077 that's coming out. It's just, you've got these really cool businesses that you wouldn't, like you said, you wouldn't know existed if you just pay attention to that home country bias. And let me give you credit right there. Cy- um, I almost called the company cyberpunk because that's yeah. the only narrative that matters right now. <laughs> but C- CD project is, if you pull up like, I think the 10 year chart of CD project, it, it's insane. When I last looked, it was the number one or two country of any uh, company of any equity in the world over that period. Yeah. And coming back to actual Unity for a second, this was a really small developer, right? Um, and I think the fact that they were able to grow to what they are today speaks to kind of the potential for the, for the industry, right? Um, and how small developers with a couple titles that really take off allow for them to grow from there. Um, but no, it's, it, that's a fascinating company. For sure. Um, I think a lot of people probably wish there was a liquid ADR because trading yep. Poland is uh, like pulling teeth. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I mean, it's crazy. I think I get alerts at like 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or something, <laughs> something crazy. It's like order filled. And, you know, it's funny because CD, CD Projects, one of the one of the most liquid names that I've that I've looked at, at least at least in Poland. But it is it, it, it does kind of give you this idea that these small games these small publishing studios you can look at them as more of a collection of call options than really this 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 operating company where you've just got you know three or four guys on 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 a laptop spinning up this game and you don't know which one's going to take off but it's almost this idea of like these little bets 
because now that because because now that the technology like unity the cost to produce these games have dropped you can you can just do more and more iterations until one hits a hundred percent and i think that's why we're seeing more um investment particularly from the venture capital space um because imagine a portfolio of 30 or 40 of these small developers you have one of them that hits and becomes the next epic games or cd project and you, you've made your return multiple times over there. It's funny you mentioned this because actually at one point I, I was kind of pitching Tim because um, there's tons of other games companies that aren't even in our ETF that are yeah. really small, don't fit our esports criteria, but there are tons, as you mentioned, listed in Japan, in Korea, in Hong Kong, in, pol- in parts, of, uh, parts of Europe as well. Um, yep. I thought it would be interesting eventually if we could kind of replicate that venture model in a, in a public portfolio because man there like literally are hundreds of micro and small cap oh, yeah. publishers that are actually publicly traded yeah yeah it's awesome i mean look if you if you go down that little rabbit hole with 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 that venture model for those publishers let me know i mean that'd be that'd be something i'd be interested in just just you know following following your coattails to see to see how you structure something like that i'll, I'll put you in for the seed of uh 10 million we'll do okay. that trade yeah, sure. <laughs> Dutch base in 40 years. <laughs> let's, let's now shift to your other ETF bets, which is all things sports betting. And, you know, what, what, what better time to talk about sports betting than kind of right now? I mean, following Roundhill on Twitter, you just see all these news of, you know, DraftKings and Penn National and, and GAN LTD. Um, just just kind of walk us through the founding of this sports betting ETF. Was it, I mean, I assume it was kind of the similar vein of video games. You just looked out over the next five to 10 years and look, this is a theme that's not going to go away. If anything, it's going to exponentiate and, uh, and, just, and just kind of go from there. Yeah. Um, so you hit it on the head. I, I think always what we're going to try and do um, with future product launches. Um, and, and, and when we launched NERV, we knew we wanted to launch more product. And there were a couple ones that we were going through. Um, but you're right. I mean, when we looked at sports betting, there were several catalysts. It's sports betting and iGaming, to be clear. And iGaming, for those maybe that aren't familiar, is really online casino, which, quite frankly, in some cases, and we can touch more on this in a second, but is, is a better business model than sports betting, which eventually might become low to zero margin business that gets people into higher margin iGaming. Interesting. But putting that, as- but putting that aside, um, Really, I think, so we actually started talking about this very late last year, decided to move forward with filing for it. And the SEC takes 75 days to review any new ETF filing. So the soonest you can get to market from filing um, to live is 75 days. Um, And in between that time, we saw DraftKings come public via SPAC, Mm -hmm. um, but knew that there were some really interesting companies, especially those listed outside of the US that were positioned to take advantage of kind of these two things that we we thought were going to play into that secular trend. The first is regulation and legalization. Um, and the second is something that we're seeing throughout the entire economy, which is the shift from physical to digital. Um, and gambling is the largest form of entertainment in the world, even bigger than video games, by a multiple of more than three. So $500 billion a year in gross gaming revenue. Some of that includes lottery and other things that maybe aren't as, as interesting. But you could start to see kind of the writing on the wall that that was just by nature of, of probably our generation's desire for, for kind of ease of use and kind of, 
you know, just everything shifting from, from physical to digital where doable that that was going to take place. So we had DraftKings um, come public, uh, you know, during that process, or excuse me, before we actually filed, we only, and we filed in, in early March. And I remember very well when we presented to the trust board, um, this was, you know, doldrums of, of market. Yeah, it feels like sports are never ever going to come back. Yep. yep. Um, and we said, look, we we think sports will eventually come back. Um, we don't know when, but we think that there'll be appetite for this product, and and so we went ahead with it. Wow. Where do you think when you when you when you look out over these categories, right? You mentioned sports books, iGaming companies, technology companies, whether that's B two B, B two C. You also mentioned lead generation, then the brick and mortar stuff. Where do you think the real winners, if you, if you had to guess where, where, where are they going to come out of in terms of categories? My first initial thought is that it's going to be these technology companies or these, you know, kind of uh, backbone sort of type companies where they provide the infrastructure on the, on, on the technology side, but I could be wrong. So do you see, you know, do you see a real winner in, 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 in all of these categories or is it more concentrated? Yeah. Well, it's really interesting when you put together a thematic product because you end up with, companies that are very diversified in terms of the types of business models and therefore very different in terms of how they're valued and the multiples that they trade at, right? So going back to esports for two seconds, the hardware company, excuse me, the hardware companies that we have that make headsets and mice and keyboards trade at much less fancy multiples than, for example, the streaming platforms. Um, And that's part of the fun part of putting together a portfolio like this is you're not, you, you don't necessarily have a value tilt or a growth tilt um, yeah. when putting it together. Um, for, for me, I think the technology providers are definitely interesting, right? So you, I think you, earlier you mentioned GAN, um, yeah. Tambi is another really interesting one. Um, and these companies are, are trading at those higher multiples, um, but they, they kind of look and feel more like, more like a unity of sports betting, more like a, yeah. a, a SaaS type provider backbone of the industry. For me, I think the real long-term upside is really within the direct-to-consumer um, sports books. So I don't know who it's going to be, but I think that th- there's definitely going to. Right now, we're seeing you know tons of companies come public. You have you know a, a, like two SPACs that are in the works. Um, companies are talking about spinning off their their iGaming and or sports betting into U.S. listing. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, you know, noise right now, but I think whoever can really kind of become the household name, the Uber of the space, mm-hmm. I think there, there's, there's just, the upside is like so incredible. And I don't even think it's contemplated by metrics that we're looking at right now in terms of how big the sports betting industry can become, because as I talked about earlier, the, the, Longer term opportunity is not just that of sports betting. It's also this iGaming concept. Um, and we just yesterday saw a company that's coming public via SPAC called Skills. That's really kind of peer-to-peer um, wagering, not necessarily iGaming, but highlights. Um, with, with iGaming, you're going into an audience that's diversified in terms of male, female, mm-hmm. um, but also really high margin, right? With sports betting, there's risk that let's say that on, on the Super Bowl, I'm making, I'm a bookmaker making a spread and I get tons of money on won't be the Pats anymore, but you get the idea. <laughs> um, you know, you can, lo- you can lose. Yeah. Uh, iGaming is very different. This is all to say that I think the industry, is, like the, that kind of direct, 
direct to consumer brand, whichever one ends up winning, yeah. I think is really where you're going to have a lot of long-term value unlocked. And I think the technology providers you talk, talk about are probably eventually brought in-house by those, hmm. um, by those providers, right? So DraftKings on the SPAC deal um, brought in SB Tech to kind of run their back end. Um, so the technology guys are, are potential acquisition targets, but the real long-term value is owning the, owning the end, end customer. And I think, I know I'm kind of rattling on here, but I think we don't even really understand like what the power of these platforms is going to be because right now we kind of only can contemplate, you know, casino games that we understand or, you know, betting on sports that we understand. But if you can get to a point where, you know, people are, are betting against one another and get, and, and, you know, it's made a social construct and you're betting on things like the, uh, the bachelor and uh, like the, the right. potential TAM is like really difficult to try and wow. understand what it could become. Yeah. I mean, you could easily, and it's, it's actually funny that you just mentioned that because it's, it's, it's easy to see a company like Netflix then try to leverage its reality TV shows and put a betting platform on you know, like some random Love Island show or something like that. Like who wins the show or, you You've know, been watching that too. No, <laughs> no, I haven't actually. My, uh, my, my, my girlfriend and I have been binging uh Schitt's Creek. So that's, oh, I like so, that one. yeah. So we just started that one. I think we're almost on season three, but no, it's just, it's just, it's just kind of the idea of like, we don't, we can't even quantify the total addressable market. And it almost now saying that, are you putting yourself at a danger of maybe having companies come to market that are, I guess for lack of a better term, just bad businesses that hide under this guise of, oh, we have such a huge market. And the only, the only reason I ask that is because Peter Thiel in a, in a YouTube video, he said, you know, like there are bad businesses that try to disguise themselves as good businesses because they say, well, look, our addressable market is so large and we're so small that, you know, over time, there's just such a big pie that we'll grow and we'll grow. And do you, oh. do you think in this industry in particular, you're going to see, especially with SPACs, they don't have the best history, but you're going to see these companies come in and say, look, kind of like cannabis, where it's like, look, this market's huge. It's just going to take off. And then they're just really bad businesses. Oh, uh, I mean, a hundred percent. Like, yeah. um, like I think there are probably companies in portfolio right now that won't exist in 10 years. And there's probably companies that we end up taking position in that won't exist in 10 years. And I think that's, not necessarily an indication of whether the business itself is bad, but rather mm -hmm. an indication of how competitive it is and the stage that we're in right now. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, you might recall a couple of years back when it felt like every single ad, if you were watching any sports related network was DraftKings or FanDuel. And 100%. this plays into the same exact reason why Penn bought a stake in Barstool, because right now it's, it's early innings. We haven't even gotten to the point where it's legalized in, in that many States yet it's all about customer acquisition right now and kind of grow it at, at any cost. And then you can yep. get to the point where it really, really looks like a good business and EBITDA margins are 25% on betting and higher on iGaming. But yeah, in, in that, in that process, just naturally when you're at this stage of an industry, um, there's certainly going to be companies, I wouldn't call them bad businesses, but rather just yeah. ones that won't, that won't capture enough share to get scale, to get, hmm. make it a really attractive business. Yeah, no, I like that. The idea of, you know, it's not a bad business per se, but it's just they can't grab that market share fast enough. Which exactly. it's kind of it's kind of like what you're seeing with Uber and Lyft. You know, they're pouring money into trying to expand for that exact reason. Right. The one nuance I will say is versus something like, let's use the example food delivery, 
that I could see just simply potentially being a bad business. Yeah. Whereas I think this industry has been proven, whether you look at the UK or Australia, to be a very profitable and lucrative business. It's that nuance of, it's it's more kind of just there will be winners and losers, not the, that no one will win or there'll be one winner. There'll be more than one. Yeah. So when you're looking at these companies for the bets ETF in particular, how much of it is dispersed globally or is it mostly just based in the US right now? Because I know Nerd is is kind of all over the place, but uh, are you seeing similar things with the sports betting market? Yeah. So we're it, it, it's very dispersed. Um, and in fact, it's only about I think 30 or 35% um, U.S. domiciled companies. I think that'll grow as we get some more of these these kind of SPACs coming to market. Right. But no, a lot of the portfolio is in is companies based in Sweden, um, based in the U.K., based in Australia, where they kind of have these more established and developed markets. And it's interesting in, in, in looking at that because you have this complete dichotomy on valuation perspective from those companies versus the pure play US ones. Um, and you mentioned GAN earlier. I mean, GAN was a UK listed company, then moves over. I forget if it's NASDAQ or NICE, but it moves over and it gets multiple expansion overnight. Yep. Um, and I think that might be something that companies look to take advantage of is kind of that valuation arb. Um, but definitely um, those, those kind of European and UK based companies have in certain cases have presence in the U.S. market, and the U.S. market is the gold rush right now. It's right. The, mm-hmm. There's, there, you know, the other markets are much more mature. Yeah. No. And I love. I'm personally biased towards the Swedish market. I just there's there's just some really cool businesses out there, and a lot of the a lot of the investor presentation decks are really easy to read because um, sometimes you get into these other countries and you got to do online document translators, and usually the Swedish companies have. English versions just readily available. So if you're looking to kind of dip your toes in, you know, for those listening, looking to dip your toes globally, I would say Sweden's a good place to start. I totally agree. And it's something I've only really like recognized maybe in the last 12 or 24 months. Yeah. Um, But there's tons of really smart investors from Sweden as well. They're active on Twitter that people can follow if they're not Mm -hmm. as, not as in tune with it, but no, it, it is a fascinating market for a country of that size with some really, really interesting companies. Um, one that's probably worth mentioning here is Evolution Gaming, yeah. um, which really their focus is on kind of these live casino games that take place online, right? So it's, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people for older generations in particular, probably even me, like how comfortable am I playing, you know, uh, dig- fully digital blackjack or fully digital, um, you know, game where it feels like, it can feel like it's raved against you, um, they, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like it's like, if you lose too many hands in a row, it's like, okay, what are the, what are the odds baked into the software here? But um, <laughs> they do something really interesting, which is delivering kind of this live video content that's, that's being able to bet on as well. I mean, that's, that's some pretty cool stuff that they're doing. Yeah. And then, you know, for those, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with Connor Haley's work over at Alta Fox Capital, but he's, uh, he's, he's in, he was, he was big on evolution gaming. That was kind of where I first heard it. And um, you know, there's, there, there's another one out there too, that, uh, that 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 deals similarly in the Baltics. I'm a I'm a shareholder. Uh, N Labs. I don't know if you've come yes. across N Labs. Yeah. We're, so that's we own, we own. Yeah. Yeah. So do I. So that's so that's just you know kind of another great business. And the cool thing about developed markets, and I'm sure you guys have come across this in your research and kind of constructing this ETF, is the 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 valuations are cheaper, but you sometimes can get just a better business 
on paper where for instance like n labs is a great business and it's not expensive it's 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 pretty cheap but it controls a huge market share in its region where if you tried to find that in the u.s you'd be paying double or even triple the multiple for the same company 100 percent, right there with you so we're coming up on the hour here and you know i just Thanks again for for kind of taking the time. I know I know you've kind of been running running the gamut on on the podcast, and your your conversation with Toby was actually so good that I I I was struggling to find, you know, some oh, some some kind of holes to go down because Toby just you know he does such a good job. He fits so much into an hour. I'm like, damn it, Toby, find ways to not be as good so I can ask your guests to come to come on my show and I can I can talk and you know I can talk shop. But I do want to close with with a couple questions. So where can people go to find out more about you? I know you're pretty big and prevalent on Twitter. Obviously that's how, that's how we got connected, but where can, where can people go? Yeah, no, Twitter's a great place. I would recommend following our Roundhill account at Roundhill, not me, because mine's going to be a whole lot less quality and probably a <laughs> similar amount of quantity. Um, but really the easiest place is go on our website, roundhillinvestments.com. Um, we're starting to roll out more of um, kind of what we call their company page series, where we kind of give a really quick overview of underlying companies in the portfolio, right? After mm. all, they're the ones doing the interesting things. Yeah. Um, and that's a place I would, I would recommend people check out. We've also done some longer form stuff um, on our blog, particularly on the esports side that kind of outlines different parts of it, like the live streaming. Um, and, and that's probably a good resource as well. Yeah, I mean, shoot, I'm excited to look into those one-page little write-ups for each company. Gosh, that would that would that would distill the research time down considerably when going when going through these. So, I appreciate that. Um, last last question that I ask everybody, and you know, it's 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 funny because sometimes I'll I'll talk to people and they'll you know I'll send them the outline on the email and they'll be like, hey man, you know this looks awesome, this looks great, and then I'll ask them this last question. I'm like, damn it, I didn't prepare for this and i'm like everybody just seems to miss this last closing <laughs> question but uh if you could if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present uh who would it be and why so when you ask this question it's like there's like it's so difficult to try and answer it probably realistically now that i'm talking through this i would say my dad who passed away a few years ago oh, if i could wow. have dinner with Sorry. him again but yeah. no 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 i don't mean i don't mean it that way that's the real answer but the answer i'll give you is i think it's funny because we actually invested in this company, but I'd love to have dinner with Tim Sweeney, who is the CEO of Epic Games. Because when mm. I look at Epic Games and more specifically Fortnite, um, and we kind of touched on this, but like, I think really what they're building, you look at music concerts that are now within the game. You look at different modes that are really built on kind of social, like it's not as much about winning, but rather about kind of a social gathering place. I yeah. really think that what he's building um, is really kind of a future of a digital reality that we kind of can't even contemplate. And to kind of speak and learn from the person that's kind of dictating the fate of a digital future would be amazing. I would also love to ask him about what the plans are going up against Apple right now. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's been a whole ordeal. Because that's a, that's a different topic, but really to understand like, what are, what are the most brilliant minds in terms of creating visual and digital worlds? Like, how do they think about what the, the future could become? I think that'd be a fascinating conversation. Yeah. I mean, even, even just the simple question of asking him, when you started this, you know, journey, did you ever think that it would get to Marshmello having concerts inside of Fortnite or Travis Scott performing inside of Fortnite? Like, I wonder if that was even part of his plan or just his long-term vision. I mean, if it was, it's, it's absolutely incredible and he's hit every step of the way, but if it's not, it just kind of gives you this taste of, 
getting the right technology in the right people's hands and then letting that evolve over time into, into these ideas. Well, I think like just on that topic, like Fortnite Save the World was the primary mode in Fortnite. Fortnite Battle Royale, the mode that everyone knows, was actually like secondary. So I don't want to answer for him, but I think yeah. that things are so fast moving in these in these sectors um, that it's probably difficult to have that too long term of a plan. But yeah. coming just like to kind of come full circle here here. I think the ability of these games companies, whether it's leveraging a Unity platform or leveraging Epic's own Unreal Engine to deliver and create new content um, is gonna be absolutely critical as we kind of move towards everything being focused on you know, in-game monetization, a digital world. It's so important to be able to leverage really efficient technology to be able to deliver that. So would you have dinner in real life or on Fortnite? <laughs> Oh, uh, I take either. I think I take either. It would be probably more apropos to do it in game, right? You gotta. All right, you gotta. Awesome. Well, Will, thanks so much for coming on the show. I look forward to talking to you again soon. And thank you so much for creating Roundhill, creating these ETFs. Uh, they make my job as an investor and researcher a lot easier and more fun learning about companies that you guys find. This is great, Brandon. Thanks. Awesome.